Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Comics Pals monthly book club series where a group of pals come together to discuss their favorite comic book series and graphic novels. I'm your host for this month's edition, Phil Casey. We almost have a full house of cards today. We're joined by Sean Bartley. Hello, hello. Pete and Bessie. Yo. And Mr. Kale Horde. Mr. I like that. I appreciate the respect. <laughs> well, I am, your, this. I am your elder, and I demand that to be addressed as such. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good, because we read a, uh, a book this month about your peers, other geriatrics, and uh, one of the most celebrated books the medium has ever produced, Kingdom Come. Solid dig. All right. <laughs> yes, sir. Your edition is different from mine. Oh, that's I was, the one I, I was oh. actually kind of wondering that. Y'all, y'all want to compare editions? Mine's in French. Sick. Wait, how do you read it? I don't. Oh. Then what? <laughs> <laughs> I got the. Uh... Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, back. We're back. What a miss. version. Pete ran upstairs to get his edition. Uh, Phil, I think yours is older than ours. I think I have a. I think my personal copy of the book might even be older than yours. Tucked away in storage somewhere because uh, I can't. Yeah, live in well, one that place. was kind of the first thing I was going to ask is if all of you have ever read Kingdom Come before. Uh, my edition here, uh, I want to say I got this in 2004 or 2005. I got it from uh, Barnes and Noble, and uh, that was the first time I ever read this, and uh, it was probably the first quote-unquote uh, quote unquote big boy graphic novel I ever read. Sean, have, have mm-hmm. you ever read Kingdom Come before this book club? Oh, yeah. Um, it's it's one of my favorites. I've read it, you know, a, a whole bunch of times at this point. I think I probably first read it in, like, 2009, somewhere, somewhere in that realm. Um, and uh, it was pretty cool because there were so many characters in it that I liked but wasn't really that familiar Me with too. because I wasn't that was at the same point of DC um and even reading it now there were so many more characters who I had ignored because I didn't know who they were that now I was like oh hey that's uh that's Mr. Miracle and Big Bard I love them you know <laughs> so uh yeah very well experienced with this book I hadn't read Kingdom Come um this this book was actually given to me by one Andy Brown uh, of the video game pals. Um, I like years ago. I probably had this book from him for like five six years, and just have never like gotten into it. I've like brought it on trips with the intent of reading it, and you know just never like got around to cracking it open. Um, so yeah, this was my first experience with it. Uh, what what were your expectations coming into this, Pete? Well, uh, the copy that I have, which is from 2008, literally at the top says, one of the greatest comic book stories of all time, according to IGN. Uh, so low. So, pretty low. Yeah, pretty mine, low mine, mine says, the greatest superhero epic of tomorrow. Right. So I, I think, you know, with that, I, I think it's safe to say my expectations were, were pretty high. Um, in 2020, I feel like we've had... A real trend on the last couple book clubs of like let's really tackle some of the classics and um this is definitely like a big gap for me and it was one that i went into with pretty high expectations and you know knowing both um mark wade and alex ross's work and like 
you know, particularly Alex Ross's work and even like being familiar with some of the most iconic panels of this just from hmm. cultural osmosis. Uh, it's a book that I was excited to dig into and kind of like see what the hype was about. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, Kale, I know you're a big fan of this book. When's the last time you read this? Ooh, great question. Shit. Uh, college to I would before wow, 2010. Ago, huh? Yeah, before 2010. So in this um in this long century that is 2020, definitely, surely. So uh, yeah, that's what I would say. Somewhere around 2010. Uh, and Sean, when, when was the last time you read it? Um, probably uh, before we started this podcast, for sure. So like maybe 2015, 2016 ish realm. So, so for all of us, it's been at least four to five years, if not longer, or, or of course in Pete's case, not at all. So uh, I, don't I think we're all going to come. <laughs> we'll all be coming into this with fresh eyes, so to speak. And uh, speaking of fresh eyes, let me tell you where you can find us, because we're a side of fresh eyes for you. Uh, you can uh, <laughs> check out uh, other great book clubs, as Pete has alluded, uh, such as uh, our Watchmen book club that we did last year. We did Sandman recently. Uh, before that, we did Swamp Thing uh, and many others. You can feel free to check out our weekly podcast that we drop every Monday, where we discuss the news and, well, the comics of the week. Uh, please check out our YouTube channel, Ring. Without all, with with all those plugs out of the way, let's let's talk about Kingdom Come. Just a quick recap, as Pete alluded to, this is by Mark Wade and Alex Ross. It was published in 1996 under DC's imprint, uh, The Elseworlds. Uh, the book was actually pitched by Alex Ross to DC after he worked on Marvels, and it was like heroes. Versus the new anti-heroes that had been emerged, emerged since the 80s. Um, so the way I kind of want to start this off is... Uh, this, you know, came out 25 years ago. And this was, you know, right as anti-heroes were at their most popular. A lot of time has passed since then. Do you still think that that kind of... Uh, tug of war between like a traditional comic book hero and the anti-heroes that rose in the 80s and 90s do you feel that kind of tug of war or is it more blended together these days that's a really interesting question um i think that when you you have to look at it two ways so at that time those characters those anti-heroes were popping up all over and you saw them in comics but that wave hadn't necessarily hit pop culture the same way that comics characters had. So we always talk about how, like, you know, there's multiple versions of Batman, but there's really two in pop culture. There's the Adam West campy version of Batman, and there's the brooding Dark Knight. And that brooding Dark Knight inspired on film a desire to see superhero characters act like that and so a lot of the superhero movies that we've seen that have had a lot of popularity especially after the dark knight movie uh were aping that style dc is still in that world they're still trying to serve us that kind of, of batman whether you like it or not that's what they're trying to offer right now mm. 
And so on the opposite end of that aisle, you have like the Avengers characters who are unabashedly heroic. The Marvel movies are not afraid of their characters being heroes. And so I do think we still have, there is still this, this, um, balancing act i guess or this tug of war but i would certainly say that post uh zack snyder although i guess that's that's debatable now too because of what's going on on hbo max we're kind of leaning away from that to a degree um but even then joker major success so i think in comics that debate is kind of settled but on screen where these characters are more popular than ever we're still having that conversation. I would push back. Well, I, I would to add more to your argument. I would also point out the the DC uh, CW stuff, which started out as very uh, dark in terms of you know what it compared to what it is now, basically, uh, but has since grown to really uh, show itself to appreciate and uh, uh, try to um, uh, emblemize the the DC universe as best it can in the comics, whereas the Netflix Marvel stuff has a tendency to be a lot darker and a lot more um, gritty. Uh, gritty, as as uh, yeah, as Pete said. So I, you know, I also think there's that balance there too. Sure. Yeah, I, to answer uh, the question that you posited, Phil, I, I do think it's kind of a blend at this point. Like, to Sean's point, I don't think that that conversation is still happening in comics, you know? Like, there is, uh, I think, a, a smattering of both of those types of characters um, that are all, that all ex- coexist to varying degrees of popularity, right? Um, and I think you can even see that, like, extend to, like, outside of just superheroes, you know, or, like, one of the most popular comics of the last several years, um, or two of the most popular comics in the last several years from Image, where The Walking Dead, which is super dark and gritty, and Saga, which is mature, but also very goofy and campy, right? So I think there are audiences for whatever kind of book is out there, where at this time, to your uh, the point you made earlier, it was definitely more of like a, I guess kind of like a culture shift you know, war, like, this is the new breed, this is what heroes are like now, this is not your grandpa's superheroes, you know? Um, and I think we've kind of moved away from that a bit. Um, and the one wrinkle I guess I wanted to add to that was, I think, in fact, those kinds of characters are now yeah. kind of seen as more analogous to, I think, how the classic heroes are portrayed in Kingdom Come, where I think there's a whole generation now that looks at that Gen X, like, dark, gritty, cynical badass anti-hero thing has played out in lame um in the way that man i hope so i mean i i definitely see that you know and like a lot of the current generation's uh most popular content right or like i think of some of the defining stuff that this generation is into right now and like it's not that you know like fortnite's the biggest game in the world that's huge with the younger generation and it's very bright and colorful and goofy and campy and there's a lot of that stuff that like Gen Z, um, and even the younger generation now, I don't even know what we call them yet, yeah. um, are into, right? Well, that's certainly the tug of war that I think Mark Way and Alex Ross had coming in. They were clearly two guys who grew up on Silver Age comics and saw how the industry was evolving. 
And uh, I really want to kind of dive into Kingdom Come the opposite of how we normally will approach these book clubs. We usually talk about the art last, but I actually want to lead off with the art because Alex Ross, his art is some of the most pervasive in popular culture. A, a lot of you know representations of characters are either seen in their more idealized 50s and 60s uh, kind of versions or I feel like uh, you know uh, uh, they're personified by what Alex Ross did now this is a story that's like a love letter or, or deconstruction of comic books but my question I guess to start off is uh, how much do you guys think Alex Ross's art enhances this story or do you think it detracts at any point I think it drives the story I don't think it just enhances. I think it absolutely drives. I don't think it's put a. Uh, I mean, if you uh, in in the twentieth anniversary edition, that's that's the one I have for uh, on on Comicsology. Uh, this was Alex mm-hmm. Ross's pitch, right? Um, which I, I I mean, I guess if you have a guy who makes art like Alex Ross does, you fucking <laughs> publish him. <laughs> it's, uh well or remember yeah. we did the earth x yeah uh, yeah and that was yeah yeah um which yeah i thought that would be a one-off but um i think even marvels which uh he did with kurt Busiek uh before kingdom come was probably even uh very well at the very least was again driven by his art yeah uh i and we'll talk about, I guess, this this throughout, but I think particularly if you're reading this as uh, an uninitiated reader or someone who, you know, um, like doesn't necessarily have that historical context for it, I think that that's really the main reason to show up. Um, because I think something that um, that I know Phil has commented about other books that we've talked about both on and off the show is that, like, there are a lot of themes in this book that I think have since been played out. So it actually felt to me a lot like going back and like reading something like um, or like getting into something like Valeria or is it Valerian? Valerian. Valerian yeah. right now where you'd be like, oh, this feels really familiar because everything that came after it aped it. Um, so for me as someone who has read something like, you know, like Injustice, which I think takes a lot of cues from this book, um, the plot feels a little like well-worn at this point because it is so influential so like to me i think the biggest draw of it was um alex ross's art and how like statuesque all of the main characters look you know and also a lot of the new heroes have really cool designs um when you ask if, if i ever thought it held it back there were some of the like less facially driven moments um particularly earlier on when I was like, kind of getting acclimated to the style, where I did sometimes find it hard to tell what was going on, um, particularly in the first issue when uh, our point of view character um, Norman, the uh, the priest, is mm-hmm. like just walking through all these different cityscapes, and you see these things happening. Like there were times where I really had to like stop and kind of like parse through the image to understand what I was looking at. I remember in particular, there's one scene where he's like, there's like a, um, what is it, Athena, right, who's in the courtroom and she's got the, the, the balances and like the, the statue's like thrown in the street. And I was like, what is that? I thought it was like a spaceship at first before I like sussed it out and saw the face and I was like, oh, okay. 
Um, and I think as I read it more, I didn't, I didn't, I found myself having that problem less and less. But I think if you are acclimated to, you know, comics, especially a lot of modern comics that do have like very clear forms and stuff like that, the kind of, you know, the watercolor style sometimes um, is a little bit more abstract. And I don't think that that's bad. I think it's way more often a strength than not. Um, but I could understand why it would take someone a minute to kind of, I don't know, get in the rhythm of it, I guess, because that was something that I, I caught myself feeling in the first couple pages. I, I think, first of all, you know, just in terms of the creative team in general, you couldn't ask for two better ambassadors for comics as far as, like, creativity goes and putting putting this stuff together. Mark Wade and Alex Ross, like, two tremendously talented creators uh, operating at the peak of their skill. You give this book to any person, and it's beautiful to look at, and it's pretty well written um, for the most part. So I think that, you know, just off rip, that's amazing. Uh, but Alex Ross is, is, I've said it before, I think he is better suited to showcase what comics are than any other artist, um, especially DC. These characters are yeah. gods, and he makes them look godly. Uh the reason why he's chosen for those 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 amazing uh, covers and things that he does is because he's able to capture a character in a moment of time and make them look larger than life. And what characters are supposed to look larger than life more than Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman, and The Flash? He's perfect for that. And um, I just think he did. I just think he did an incredible job. And I feel like. This book is categorically worse with any other artist. Oh, yeah. For the simple fact that they couldn't be Alex Ross. That's it. The, I don't the, even know if there'd be a point to it without his the, art. The sequels uh, to this book have long since vanished to history. Like, they're not even a whisper to, <laughs> to what this is. I didn't know that they existed until I started doing more reading into it and as soon as i saw that alex ross had like had a dispute with mark wade and like left the project i was like oh no wonder i had no idea that there was more stuff in the line yeah they had disagreed about how to do what came next or slash before um and yeah he walked away Uh, honestly i don't know if this is a book that ever needs a sequel the whole story is told here and as we'll get into like the the ending of it is perfect and emblematic of just uh dc comics as you know universe i guess um sean you kind of talked about how uh this book portrays these characters as gods and i think that's a really uh i think that's an important point uh the book is called kingdom come and it, and it primarily drops quotes and references to to uh, revelations from the bible throughout the book uh the story starts out with uh, Superman and all uh, many of the other old guard of heroes uh, either retiring or stepping away after an incident with a new, more edgy superhero Magog, another biblical reference. Uh, his more um, assertive uh, heroics lead to uh, one million people dying in Kansas. And his actions lead to the death of the Joker. Pete alluded to uh, Injustice, which is obviously a story beat there. Uh, and obviously the Joker had uh, killed Lois Lane earlier in the story. So we kind of pick up with all these story beats. And 
the specter visits um he visits what's his name uh norman norman mckay and needs him as like a, a human anchor to kind of depict what's happening next as basically all these characters inch closer and closer to armageddon or kingdom come uh when we did the watchman book club i started that book club by asking if you guys felt the watchman was a fair analysis of what the real world would be like if superheroes really existed in it this is a story of a world that's long lived in do you guys feel like kingdom come is like the natural conclusion of the dc universe i think it was in 1996 that's an interesting I, argument. I I feel like now there's so much other bullshit that, and I think even uh, post Infinite Crisis, I I don't think I would have said that Kingdom Come would be a natural ending. I I I think so much has happened to DC in general. The New Fifty Two alone would knock it out of contention i think specifically bringing up the point of like it through the lens of 1996 i think is really interesting to me because i don't think it feels like a natural conclusion now um but to like look at the culture of that era and like generation x in general and like that whole like lost generation sense of cynicism and nihilism and you know life is pointless and you know like that whole Kurt Cobain attitude right like it's something that I I guess I can kind of see like drawing a parallel between that and this younger generation of heroes that just don't you know get it right that like think that all that old-fashioned stuff is hokey um, because that was very much like I think the attitude of youth culture at the time um, but it, it did ring a little bit like old man yells at cloud to me of just like, ah, yes, of course, all of the young people are bad, you know, and they have no moral fiber. Um, not like the good old 1950s Superman. So like it works, but I think it, it does like it's, it skirts that line a little bit for me. I mean, but Mark Wade has been that person since 1974. So... <laughs> Yeah, you know, I I feel like um, it's tough, right? Because the comparison that they're making isn't old people to young people. It's the old superheroes versus the new superheroes that were created in real life. These anti-heroes, you know? So it's, it's like... At that time, that was a thing, right? You know, there really were a bunch of anti-heroes that were cropping up in comics that were, you know, taking all the spotlight that people wanted to see who didn't reflect necessarily the values of the superheroes that, you know, anchored comics for all the years prior. Um, So when you look at it from that perspective, uh, I do think it makes a lot of sense that they would come to this. What I think is so funny and ironic is that (laughs) what, like, okay, so Magog is bad, but I feel like I've seen every single hero in this book do some extra crazy (laughs) thing at some point in their history, and all of them have been 
not an anti-hero necessarily, but have have skirted the the laws of superheroics, sure. especially when you're considering what this is a reaction to. That same era that we're talking about is what produced books like The Dark Knight, or um, uh, uh, what mm. am I thinking of? Um, year One, mm. and yeah. you know the edgier books, Dark Knight Returns, those edgier comic books, like. The anti-hero phase came yeah. from that, not exclusively, but I would say that was a contributing factor. Yeah, absolutely. so it's just kind of funny to to to, to it's almost like they're That's facing a good themselves. Point. The book does a good job of kind of pointing this very contradiction out. Uh, you know, Superman and his league uh, exercise extrajudicial, you know, incarceration of other superheroes around the planet, and a big you know, uh, impasse comes toward the climax of the story where one woman basically says, this is war and we have to, you know, make decisions, the hard decisions, which may involve killing people. And she does kill someone. And the big thing that Superman talks about this whole crusade against this new wave of characters is because they don't value life. But in the end, his crusade is, uh, uh, leads to massive loss of life. Uh, and that kind of is uh, it kind of leads into how I want to approach talking about this. I want to talk about the characters, our actors here, and I think I think Superman's our natural starting point. Uh, what, what do you guys think? Let's keep it broad. What do you guys think of our older, uh, more jaded Superman? Um. So this version of Superman. So my my early encounters with that character in comics were always in events or Elseworlds titles or things like that that weren't necessarily, you know, core stuff. Like, this isn't in continuity or anything. Uh, and I love seeing Superman in those types of stories because I feel like creators feel more comfortable um, exploring him in a different way. This book puts him in a situation that, you know, at least for me, never really seen him in before. Certainly not at that time. Where he is a little older, a little slower, and he's not... he His values do not reflect the world the way that they used to. Superman is almost unbeatable as a character. Physically, you know, you're not really going to get far. And so stories where it's just about Superman punching a guy are lame a lot of the time this is not about that this is about superman becoming a dinosaur this is about his his what his way of life what he thinks makes the most sense isn't what we're valuing in the same ways magog for whatever reason um you know he's kind of becoming that new that new superman um and so superman kind of feels invalidated by that and getting to see how he reacts to that, I think, is really interesting. Um, things go really bad, and he retreats. You know, he doesn't uh, fight the good fight. I always compare him to Captain America, and in Civil War, which is totally, you know, like, they you know, they, yeah. they were inspired by this, I would imagine. They looked this over. Um, Captain America only relents when he realizes that the people don't necessarily want things done the way he does them anymore. And so there's so much at play with Superman. He lost his his real tethers to humanity. Um, 
he doesn't, I don't want to say he doesn't care, but he's not compelled to action the same way he used to be. Finding him in that space is so unique, and I love the way that things play out. Getting to watch this character, who's in a new place, make different decisions than we've seen him make in the past. But ultimately, he's still the same Superman. That was really, I think, the driving appeal of the the actual narrative for me. You know, like, um, art aside, was that I think... Um, I think it's really important to be able to connect to characters like Superman and Batman specifically that are like, you know, these larger than life, like almost godlike figures for me anyway, is to show them have vulnerability. And <clears throat> I think uh, Superman especially, right, um, for all his power and everything, I think the thing that you can do that makes him the most human is to show um, him being unsure of himself and having that emotional vulnerability. And that is like this whole journey, right? Like he... Uh, is coaxed back into society by Wonder Woman and then is kind of having his strings pulled um, and, like, thrust into this role of being a world leader that he doesn't necessarily feel like is right for him or, like, doesn't necessarily speak to his values. As to Sean's point, the world is kind of changing and moving beyond him, you know? And I think, like, his return, he figures out that, like, maybe he does still have things to offer the world, right? And there are a lot of this younger generation of heroes and his, his peers that are inspired by his return. But it's not that clean, you know? And, and I think, uh, for me, my favorite moment of the book emotionally is when you get to that point that I believe it was Phil who alluded to where Wonder Woman's kind of like, this is war. Like, this is what we have to do. And, and he's like, and that means people are going to die. And they all look at him with this, like, disgust, you know, and this, like how how naive are you how childish are you that you think that we can do this without killing and that journey um th through these ebbs and flows you know like i think are really the the heart and soul of the story and it makes a lot of sense when you're talking about this idea of emblemizing the the classic golden age heroes like who is more emblematic of those values than superman for me reading this uh yeah you know, i i i it's been a long time and i i i have i had a hard time kind of remembering how clark really played in this story and my exactly Cal. my reading is this is a man grieving um a, a big reason why there, he lacks the clarity to make the toughest choices is because uh, he <laughs> he's not wearing his glasses he um he blames himself for what happened with Captain Marvel, <laughs> for what happened to Kansas, for what happened to Lois. Uh, and when you carry that much burden on your shoulders, you, you know, you can't see the sky from the shoreline. Uh, his conversation uh, with the pastor at the end about how, you know, this lack of clarity led to him prioritizing the super instead of the man. Uh, I think really speaks to the heart of the conflict in this story. This is a story about war between metahumans and people with superpowers. But what uh, ultimately is most appealing about comic books is the humanity, which uh, kind of Pete alluded to. Uh, uh, it, was, it was a very, it was very relatable. Uh, I really like Superman's arc in this story a lot, and and its role in. He's kind of like a manifestation of comic books, I feel like. And it ties everything we've talked together about so far. But anyway, uh, Kale, did you have anything you wanted to add on, on Superman here? 
Well, just the just uh, Mark Wade does a really good job of putting you in the place of both empathizing with Superman and really feeling his burden, but at the same time, in that moment that you that you guys are all talking about with uh, uh, they're just about to go to war. I also feel like Mark uh, did a really really good job of. Uh, putting you mm. in the mm. crowd uh, like emotionally and sort of like so like when he says yeah but people are gonna die you're also like oh wait and like in that moment reading it this time i really felt frustrated uh by the way things had played out um in a way that i'm sure superman felt uh, you know, as as Pete said, like he, you know, he felt like his strings were being pulled or whatever into being a world leader, but that's not what he wanted. And now it's all here, and this is all happening because he's been thrust in this position, and this isn't what he wanted to happen. But he's still trying to hold on to that naivete, and in that moment, you're in the crowd with. I believe that's still when, it, yeah, it has to be Norman and the Spectre. We're still watching them. Yeah, our viewpoint is still in that crowd, and it, it like you, you feel both his frustration and then also just like as a part of that crowd around him. You're also like, well, yeah, yeah. Like, why did it take you until now to get that? Man, you you make a really good point, Kale. And like while you were talking, uh, I kept thinking about how this story is, you know, at least Superman's arc is a lot of a lot of a commentary on how with yeah. great power comes great responsibility. Oh and wow, what an original thought! I know, right? I've never heard you that. Should before. Write that one down, Sean. Damn these these new heroes have all this power, but they don't take ownership over it. They're they're not accountable. For their actions, whereas the older heroes are, what Superman would have needed to, needed to do to stop, you know, all this terrible stuff, is to use his power in a way he's oh, not comfortable really being point. responsible for, at least, you know, in his mind. And so he chooses exile, and the cost of that is everything that we ultimately see, and him taking ownership of. The fact that he chose not to act and that his power um, can be used in a responsible way to help usher in a new age of heroes is the only reason and the only way that they're ultimately able to succeed. And when you look at how the story ends with, you know, the most powerful being ever existing now inside of Wonder Woman's uh, stomach, these three, these most powerful people make a decision to responsibly raise the most powerful child, which is something that they should have done with the new age of heroes that was coming up, but they chose not to. And so that's why I feel like the story had to end that way. They're making a different choice than the one that they made before. They're taking accountability and they plan to guide the new age responsibly. Very eloquently put. Thanks. Uh, Kale, you mentioned 
how we are watching the events of the story unfold through the eyes of the specter and through the eyes of the pastor, Norman McKay. Uh, how did you guys, uh, he, you know, obviously he's our POV character. We're seeing things happen across who knows how long of a period of time through his eyes and his moralizing. Uh, how, how effective do you feel like Norman was as kind of our, our POV character, our relatable character that grounds us in this, you know, in this world? I think it's probably one of my favorite devices. Um, it's in, similar to Marvel's, it's putting an everyman in the position of looking into these dealings with gods you know and and even you know even in the uh the the moment when norman is dealing with concepts and you know the cosmic beings he turns away he's like no hold on this is too much um i think it it works to sort of give more background into uh the world uh, that we're in as well as uh, sort of peeking into the more private conversations like the ones between uh, Superman and Wonder Woman or uh, Superman and Batman. Um, I I would say it, it, it was clunky at times in those same moments uh, because of the, some of the stuff I feel like was, uh, it felt like it, needed to be um sort of told in a way that was like oh remember i was exiled from blah 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 after you were mm. blah 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 it what you know it did it, it, it it's not the worst crime um but there were there were one or two moments where i i guess as a more mature reader i sort of it sort of caught me yeah i mean like you use the term device and i think like that's the best way to describe it and i I think it is an effective device but i think like there are times where it's it's tangible that that's what it is right where it doesn't just feel like a effortless part of the story or like a, a character as much as it does feel like a means to an end to try to do those things in a way that doesn't feel like editorial boxes you know um, and I think for that it's effective, and it, I think it's very effective um, because when it works, it really works. Um, and I, and I think like Phil alluded to, you know, kind of like how it weaves in, um, you know, these like Christian themes from the Bible, and and like obviously having the point of view character be a pastor like makes those things feel a little bit less um, rote. You know, it's super super easy to like put a quote from a famous piece like that and like mm. act like that gives it context or has like some profound meaning. Um, and I feel like Earth it makes X. it feel sure. Uh, and I think it makes it feel more connected to the story with that. So I, I, I liked it. I thought it, I thought it worked well for what it was attempting to do and what it needed to do for such a short book. Um, that was one of my, it was one of the few things I actually am bothered by with this book. Uh, I understand why they chose that device, but 
it feels like a crutch, actually. Um, and while it was effective in spaces, I had a lot of moments where I'm like, all right, I really do not care about this. I want to let the heroes, you know, act the story out. I don't care about all this, you know, extra commentary from these two. And I remember um, when we did the Earth X book club, one of the criticisms was Machine, I believe it was Machine it was, Man. Yeah, and, and Uatu. And yeah. Uatu, you know, you guys felt like their conversations uh, were unnecessary at times. Well, well they were also like, 15 pages long. Like, <laughs> Yeah, no, 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 well, okay, but let me get to my, my sure, comparison. Sure. Um, I felt like they had for me they had interesting things to say whereas all of these things were kind of like musings that didn't enhance the story uh not every single time but i definitely felt like that quite a few times and when there's so little space you know there's only four issues um i'd much rather see superman and Wonder Woman or Batman and Lex or whoever and whoever having a conversation rather than two people who are not going to have much of an impact on the story overall, I, especially I w- scene to scene. I would definitely agree with, with that point because that was, I think, probably my biggest criticism of the book is that I think that there are a lot of actors in the story who are not characters. Um, like, there is development for Superman um, – and Wonder Woman to a lesser extent, but I feel like even Batman, like, he's kind of in the margins for most of it, and all of the other members of the Justice League, like, collectively have, like, ten lines, you know? Um, and, like, someone like Green Lantern, who's in the entire story and is a, is an actor in, in several moments, and, like, one of the big takeaways at the end is that, like, he be, is a, becomes a world leader and all this stuff. Like, what does he even say in the book? Like, he maybe has, like, three or four lines, um, whereas, like, Aquaman, who's a character who they go and, and talk with once, has a lot more lines than than that character who's supposed to be in the inner circle and, and doing all this shit. And they make a comment in the beginning about how the new generation of heroes are this kind of, like, faceless legion. And, like, that's 100%. Like, I, mm-hmm. I don't know that we learned any of their names. And if we did, I don't remember them. And if we did learn their names... Um, or anything like we didn't learn anything about them as people. It's like, oh, this person is someone's son or daughter, and that's the most relevant thing about them. That's a re- you know? that's a really good point. That's actually something I was gonna bring up later, but since we're here, we might as well talk about it now. Uh, so really, the only the face of kind of this new wave of, of characters is Magog, and, and, and Ooh, but sorry, can I just add to what Pete said? Really, yeah. like it's directly related. Yeah, go for it. Um, in in the in this twentieth anniversary edition. Uh, there's a, a afterword from Mark Wade, and he answers like the biggest questions for from Kingdom Come, and uh, one of the things he says is uh, it wasn't until the end of issue one altogether that he realized this was going to be a Superman story. He'd had volumes of other content for all the creators and all or all the uh, characters and all the backstories and all the uh, you know and, and that's not even counting all the stuff that alex ross had yeah. right um which if if you can get your hands on the 20th anniversary edition it's got some killer 
character bios and sketches and everything. Oh, that's cool. Uh, I like to see that. It's incredible. Uh, But uh, I guess his editor was like, yeah, you've only got 180 pages. It's a Superman story. (laughs) And that that is is my number one. I have three critiques, three main critiques of this book. Those are one and two. Number one is that I feel like the story is trying to set up this big, you know, kind of... um, it's trying to set up this big narrative about the the new generation needing to be guided by the older generation to not make the same mistakes they made, but also not to forget the values of of, of what the old generation had had to offer and what they'd learned. And that's never imparted. Like everything I just said about Superman and the power and responsibility balance and how they will get it right with the son of superman and wonder woman that's all cool but that should have been something that we saw play out within the store within the body of the story as well there should have been uh characters who we aren't familiar with who learn something from the older generation who 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 change their ways as a result um and that Mm -hmm. doesn't really ever happen so because of that you don't feel the weight of the lessons that are being unlearned, the lessons that we're not seeing characters get. Um, that could have been done better. And then my second biggest, biggest criticism is simply that the story is too short. I think that it needed more breathing room. Characters like Green Lantern should have had a bigger role. The Flash should have had a bigger role. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I just think that there, there could have been more and it doesn't need to be so much more. It didn't need to be ten issues, but even if it was six, I think you could have you could have done a lot. So yeah, this, this the story presents this this new generation of more lethal superheroes, and you know they're represented most by Magog. And in my memory of reading this fifteen years ago or whatever, I remember Magog more as a bigger player, and, and maybe that's because of of Jeff Johns' uh, Justice Society run, and maybe I conflate the two, but. Uh, in rereading this, I sort of felt like there was a disservice to the point of view of those newer generation of characters. Uh, and by the sounds of it, you guys felt the same way. Yeah, and I, yeah. Found, I found an example of a page of dialogue between um, our narrators uh, that really stuck out to me uh, when I was reading it and as being like really annoyingly superfluous. So it's it was uh, the page is like after uh, Superman goes and talks to Batman for the first time, and then they're kind of discussing the conversation that we just watched play out, right? And literally the first panel is all we needed from these narrati- narrators if they were going to talk at all. Where like um, Norman says, were they ever friends, Superman and Batman? The way they bicker, it's hard to tell. And then the Spectre goes, great minds do not always think alike. And then the rest of the page is explaining to you, here's what Batman represents, and here's what Superman represents, and also here's what Wonder Woman represents. And it's like, I wish I, – I, it's one of those things where, like I, like Sean said, I get why you're doing that. But, like, for this story and what it's supposed to be, like, I would rather it trust me as a reader to understand what those characters mean or to um, – show me what they mean through more action rather than telling me what their relationship is and what they what they represent you know and all that kind of stuff it's like it feels very like at odds with 
you know, with what we're talking about, right? Where, like, you know, this is an example I thought of, too. Is like, this dude on the back, the guy in the gimp mask, like, he's one of the people that Superman meets at that metahuman bar, and he's like, oh, like, I'm going to go join up with Superman. And then you see him in the background for the rest of the entire book, but he never talks. We don't know his name. I don't know what his powers are. And it's like, like, what is the point of having all these characters and having this, you know, generational dispute if I don't know who any of the young characters are? You just make them this faceless drove of, like, assholes who then hear Superman talk once, and they're like, I've seen the light. That's it. I'm in. I'm a good guy now. Or they, you know? or they don't. Right. And then they're I mean, put in a gulag, and we never hear from them again until Wonder Woman stabs them. That's sort of what the 90s heroes were, were exactly what you said, this faceless drove of assholes who are gone now, mostly. And, like, fair enough, but, like, to Sean's point, give us two characters who are the representations of that, right? Like, have, um, what's his name? The bad guy. Magog. 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 Uh, have Magog, Magog be a more relevant character who has more than, like, a interaction with Superman, like show me more about his early career. Tell me more about what he did and what he represented. And you know, like he's fleshed out a little bit. There's not even one good guy, young character who gets any level of attention at all. But you know, and it's interesting because in my memory, I remember Magog being a much more antagonistic presence in this story, but he's not. Story, he's presented as the antithesis of Superman, and his role is becoming more favorable in Metropolis or whatever. But when Superman confronts him after coming out of retirement, he's repentant. He's like, put me in your gulag, you know. Uh, I hear the ghost of one million people in my head every day or whatever. Well, after his antagonistic monologue, sure. Yeah, well. And he shoots Superman, then he's like, all right, I'm done. Yeah. Uh, whom, whom amongst us? Um, the only uh, sort of, you guys were mentioning, like, uh, the sort of rehabilitation of these young assholes. Um, the only panel that I can think of where this could even remotely be apparent is um, when Diana is getting her uh, royalty back or whatever at the ceremony. Uh, Magog and the little crowd of jerks are standing there, I guess watching or whatever. Uh, they're supposed to be that's supposed to be like their rehabilitation zone i guess and 666 guy spits and magog (laughs) slaps him in the back of the head and i i guess that is maybe supposed to signify ah yes character things are changing (laughs) i mean i feel like the story is is trying to present this duality of of what justice is and it's mentioned multiple times because of superman what are truth and justice right and this is a conversation that comes up frequently in our book clubs about like when it's morally appropriate if at all to dispense any kind of lethal justice uh but the convert the book never lets that conversation take place it, it moralizes the entire time saying it's wrong and, and maybe it is but uh i don't know if that's something that bothered you guys while reading it that it was basically moralizing to tell you that killing uh, as justice is not justice at all. So it's it's interesting because with the, with the DC characters, I'm a lot more comfortable with that being the the, the flat stance because 
when you talk about like Marvel, right? We did the X Force book club. We talked a lot about righteous killing. Well, those characters are not Superman. Superman can make an alternative choice. Uh, mm. He doesn't have to kill you to stop you right. in almost every situation, right? Well, what about when things- Zod's got somebody's <laughs> neck and he's got what's it? What's he gonna do? That's what I was just about to bring up. That in in the case of Man of Steel, when Zack Snyder tried to to go down that road, he was met with an abundance of pushback because people just didn't buy it. Uh, I'm I in this story, when you're talking about these characters, I don't really feel like Superman needs to really think too much about whether or not he should be killing people. I, I feel like it's it's fine for him to say. Nah, not doing that. And Wonder Woman and The Flash and them, they don't need to do that. Um, But because the newer characters don't have a point of view, uh, it's hard to understand why they choose to do that. Um, I would have loved to have seen that better explored. Uh, I understand it's like, okay, well, why should we have to keep dealing with these bad guys over and over again? Let's just get rid of them. That's that's fine. Like Magog but, brings up the whole thing that led to Lois's death, right? Where it's like if you had just stopped the Joker, then like no, those ninety people wouldn't have died, and your wife would still be alive. Right, and that's you know a piece. That's not a story, and that's what troubles me. There, because the story is so centered around the DC characters who we're used to. Do, should those characters be killing people? No. They don't need to. They're way too powerful for that. And it'd be weird. But these other characters, maybe they have a legitimate beef. Um, maybe Magog's parents were murdered by Darkseid. And he's like, well, why? Superman is a god. Why are my parents dead when he could have just smoked Darkseid years ago? You know, I would like to hear that. But that never comes up. Yeah, and, like, it's touched on in marginal ways. Like, the the Magog example, or, like, there's the conversation between Superman and Batman where they talk about how some character who we have no idea who they are called Genocide, spelled S-Y-D-E, blew up Arkham Asylum and Blackstone and all these places and all these supervillains are dead. And, like, Batman's like, I mean, I would never do it, but you can't lie that it, like, you know, maybe makes your your skin tingle a little bit, right? Um Pretty I don't even believe up. Batman would say that. Yeah, pretty fucked right. up thing for Batman to say. That, that was just stupid, I, I felt. And, when, like, I feel like he's saying it to get a rise out of Superman, and, like, Superman comes to him later and says, the one thing we've always agreed on is that life is valuable and blah, 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 blah. But, like, again, mm-hmm. the fact that you can read it that way and that there's no argument textually that I can say, well, here here's the moment where we see that, you know, that that was a ruse or whatever. I'm with you where it's, like, there's a lot of stuff in here that's subtext and not text. And, like, that is the sign of generally either the fact that the story is weak or that the story is thin. And I don't think the story is weak, but it clearly needed more time to cook. It needed more issues. It needed more space to deal with these really deep themes in a more nuanced way. Um, But to bring it back to that question that you asked, Phil, about the killing thing, I'm with Sean where I feel like it, it... it is feels appropriate for this set of characters and especially this story and what it's supposed to be about. Um, my favorite line uh, from Superman in the book was there's um, that scene where he and Wonder Woman are outside of um, New Oa, the the Green Lantern space station, and they're like braiding the the lasso of truth and like you know like basically just shooting the shit and like 
Superman leaves um, as the kind of conversation gets a little bit intense, and he says, only the weak succumb to brutality. And I feel like that's, like, the thesis statement of his arc, right? Is that, like, it it takes more strength to... Uh, hold a punch. To, to hold a punch, to choose peace, right? To... Um, to to not kill your wife's killer, right? That is a is a greater sign of a sign of strength, and that's what makes a hero a hero. And that theme is brought up again through uh, Wonder Woman's arc, right? Of the fact that like the Amazons disown her, or not disown her, but I mean basically um, for for being someone who is more likely to outstretch an open hand than a bald fist, right? And like Batman criticizes that ideology up, down, and backwards, right? It's like spread peace and love, but don't be afraid to get your knuckles bloody. And mm-hmm. like the kind of, you know, how that's a non, that does, that's nonsense, right? Like that's, that those things are immediately opposed. And to like, th- for that to be the, the resolution of that culture, right? Of like, oh, you failed at your job because you didn't kick enough ass is not the ideology of a peaceful society. I felt like that entire, uh, that entire arc of this story was muddled because was it, was it that Wonder Woman didn't kick enough ass, as you said, Pete, or was it that she failed humanity because of the state that they were now in? She didn't, she didn't accomplish her mission. Uh, also, you know, Batman saying, you know, what you just said about, like, peace and love, but don't be afraid to get your knuckles dirty. Well, who gets their knuckles more dirty, more bloody of of the big three than Batman? Right. Batman is fighting in the streets. Superman is more likely to fight someone who doesn't bleed than than Batman is. Right. And Batman is making these, these dudes bleed all day. Um, and so I, like, I get it. And I'm sure he was talking more about like murdering people, um, but we're not. We're also not talking about um, the kinds of criminals that Batman is typically dealing with, mm. and the Justice League has killed before. So there's 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 hypocrisy present in these conversations. Never reach an apex of of understanding on both sides. That's clear. Like, okay, Batman feels like Wonder Woman is a hypocrite for wanting to broker peace, but also ready to beat people up. But you beat people up. Hmm. Right. She doesn't clap back at him. And so that conversation dies, and you have no resolution on both their thoughts. She, she does before, though. She you know, basically says, you dare like, you know, act like you're holier right. than me. Towards the end. Yeah. The hypocrisy but, um, exists. I, I think it's deliberate. Um, go ahead, Pete. I'll, I'll say my point after what you have to say. Mine does directly build on that point about Batman, where that's true of the conversations he has with Lex, too, like about what Superman's doing. And he's like very like, oh, they're building a gulag and they're doing all this stuff. It's like, bro, you have a drone strike yeah. throughout all of Gotham where you're picking up regular unpowered people and beating the shit out of them with robots and taking them to what prison, right? How is that any fucking different? Or like, what was Arkham? Right, right. What was Arkham? It was a revolving fucking door. Uh, so it was literally the same thing, but less effective. <laughs> so like, what are we talking well, about? I don't know here? about that. That was a standing institution. Yeah. It had a revolving door, but it was open for longer than 10 minutes. Sure. That's you're absolutely right. I, my thing is, 
that he he directly was comfortable contributing to that. I think I think Arkham though is a different scenario because in theory those people are supposed to be getting help. Well, the Gulag was they were they were trying to rehabilitate, yeah. right? That they was the goal. Superman's whole point yeah. and justification is that perhaps these people will be able to re-enter society when and, they don't kill people. But they also called it the Gulag. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Quickly, that was dumb. <laughs> right. Uh, that that part I'm not arguing. <laughs> Uh, one other thing that I don't think we, uh, well, we haven't talked about is that in the beginning, when we first really see the chaos between the newer generation of heroes and then their villains, especially in the first issue, is that it all, besides the, you know, whatever their attitude may or may not be toward killing and violence, uh, it also seems like they're just acting like it's a game right like you know when when you see uh the the 666 guy in the building he's cracking up he's having a great time and i and to me that is like a greater indication of sort of where that generation is is it's the the wanton destruction and violence and and it's it's a game you know like like you say they're they're not taking responsibility they're doing the exact opposite they're flagrantly disregarding the safety of everyone else i think that's a great point my only issue is that that like that is super disingenuous that that one character or magog right whichever like one instance we can point to that those characters would represent, and I'm talking about the perspective of the creators, that those characters would represent an entire generation of people. Like, there's no counterbalance, but then there's also no individual or individuals to say, this is why we feel like this. They're, they're painted with such a broad brush mm. that they, it's, a, it's, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to feel how they feel. Right. Um, even if you like if you put yourself in the shoes of a person who grows up in the DC universe you might be really angry that one day uh superman was fighting with you know whoever and they destroyed your building and your and your parents died and you lost your arm and then you got a robotic arm and now you're like all right i'm going to kick some ass because they wouldn't do it they wouldn't get the job done so i need to get it done you know, there's no nuance to any of those characters to suggest why they feel like that or anyone feeling differently than that. Prior to the one scene where Superman's at the bar where the guy's just like, all right, I'm down with the cause now. They're, the, the, the story is too short. Yeah. And it doesn't even try, I don't feel, to reflect any nuance on, on the side of the new generation. And that's unfortunate because I do think there was a really compelling story there. Potentially. And that I made the comment earlier in the conversation where like parts of it feel a little old man yells at cloud and like that really bugs me um, because as, as good as the story is and as much as I like some of the things it goes for, um, I really, really have a distaste for stories that are just like, remember the good old days? Remember how the old generations got everything right and these snot-nosed punk kids don't get it? Like it feels like an old fogey book. 
you know? And, like, the fact that the story is about these relic superheroes who are old fogies and that, like, the ultimate takeaway is that the real problem with society is that they stopped being in charge. That's lame. Like, that you know, sucks. There, There is a degree of that, but I also think... I, I don't think that's... I, I don't think that's entirely true because when I read this, I, I, sometimes I feel like Armageddon, Kingdom Come, Revelations are, are analogous to inner turmoil. A lot of people in, in real life will feel like the world is ending uh, because their world is ending. The book is, represents change and we look at Batman is a character whose body is broken down and has basically created a surveillance state in Gotham. And in his mind, he's created a utopia, but he's clearly, you know, he's lost what made him Batman. Wonder Woman is even welcomed back on Paradise, Paradise Island or Themyscira. Uh, and, you know, she has to overcompensate for that insecurity and that guilt by going to extremes. Uh, Superman has become more super than man. He's lost his humanity. So the old ways that we talk about are things that aren't even represented by their primary characters because they've all lost what is, quote-unquote, the old way. Because they gave up their convictions. And it's been 10 years since the, the, the disappearance of Superman. They all gave up on their convictions. Even though Batman has continued to be Batman... He's given up on the things that prevented him from doing those very things, having a surveillance state, um, you know, just drone droning people. Uh, those are convictions that he had that he let slide within these this 10 year time frame. Every single one of them have given up on the responsibility to use their powers in a certain way. Mm hmm. Superman gave up his responsibility to be a leader. He doesn't want the responsibility, and he should have taken it. He should have said, all right, you guys are misguided. Let's sit down. Let's discuss why we do things the way we do them. Let's bring up the new generation properly. There's blame to go around in this story. And I think if you read it, you can see that. Yeah. The problem is that the, the, the storytellers themselves don't go out of their way to say that to you in a concrete fashion because no one is judging them. Is that bad though? Uh, I think it is because the new, so, so I, I keep saying this. I'm not trying to restate the same point. I'm trying to be yeah. clear. The new generation of heroes do not specifically criticize the old generation in a way that explains why they feel how they feel. Because killing people wantonly is not a normal human thing. That's sure. not like, you don't just do that, right? And if you had power to do it, would you still? Is that a, a question that the story is asking? I don't know. So because I can't answer that one, let's go to another one. Do they do it because they're in pain? Did something happen to these people that now that they have powers, they want to act in a certain way? Well, the story doesn't say that either. So what is the reason? What is the reason why this new generation has a reaction to the old generation of heroes that causes them to pivot? The story does not explicitly state what that is. So because of that, we're left to look to 
the heroes of old. They are just acting how they're acting. They are not being criticized by anybody. So you're left to your own devices, but the story is telling you that these characters are objectively wrong. The new heroes are objectively wrong, and the older heroes, maybe they made some mistakes, but at the end of the day, everybody's happy. All of them are happy. Yeah, and I, I agree with Sean where I think that's, you know, t- I, I don't think that any of the rebuttal that you offered there, Phil, is like off base. I think that you're making strong points about um, the fact that the characters that we're supposed to identi- identify with are flawed. But it doesn't mean that they don't that – do- that the story doesn't implicitly present them as right because they're the only characters with a point of view. How You know what I mean? Like there is no challenge. There is no alternative. And – the you know the other in this situation being the youth is just presented as like you know these directionless shitty kids and that's it there's a angle that's not being explored here though because while it's while i would say the youth characters that's an underbaked un, unrepresented issue and we are offered the point of view of bruce diana and clark are point of view characters are the specter and and uh the pastor and the third party here that i think is also baked in are is humanity and that that was kind of going to be the second point i was going to allude to is as superman starts coalescing all the superheroes on the planet and locking him to gulag uh, bruce wayne teams up with lex luthor because humanity is afraid of basically this unchecked power of metahumans, and understandably so. The you know, loss of life because of the unchecked conse- uh, the, the, the unfettered lack of responsibility from the superhero community has led to untold loss of life across the planet. Uh, ultimately, in the climax of the story, the agreement is basically for superheroes to work more hand-in-hand with, you know regular human governance uh and that fear is is understandable uh so i i i i think while perhaps the the, the killing ethical question is underbaked uh the the real i think the real message of the story is is the role of humanity in all this okay but again humanity wants to bomb <laughs> and eliminate all That's of right. the superheroes which is extreme um, and on top of that they don't differentiate really between who's good and who's bad they themselves are flawed yeah it's like straight up it, Lex yeah, Luthor the, is there obviously the Spectre calls it genocide right like it's mm-hmm. like the solution is just wipe them all out that's it right so so like Everyone is bad. Everyone is wrong. And I like stories where everyone is wrong. My only criticism, I won't say this anymore, is that I just wish somebody represented and criticized directly the ways that the, the older heroes have failed to do what they're supposed to do. Yeah, we, we can pivot and transition to an example of an older hero that has failed in, in what they were supposed to do. Let's talk about Batman at this point. Uh, how do you guys feel about old Batman? Um, 
I said it earlier. I feel like he's a little underbaked. I think right. there's a lot of uh, the major beats of his story are things that like I, I kind of like raise my eyebrow out in terms of like I don't see how he can legitimately feel this way and like not realize that he's you know um, being a hypocrite you know and like that on top of the fact that I feel like in general like his actions are less shown we get less insight into what he's thinking and feeling um, he's an actor but I don't know, like, it, it feels like he really only matters in um, in in the context of other characters in the story. I really like Batman in this story. Um, because, first of all, he's a complete troll. I feel yeah, like the whole time he's true. begging to be punched. <laughs> um, which is, is, I like my Batman that way uh, from time to time. But... Um, Batman has always been willing to do what needs to be done um, with with certain limitations, and he seems the quickest to adjust to this new world. I mean, he's he never stops, yeah, uh, doing what you know, doing what he does. Uh, he just becomes more extreme about it, which I've always believed would be a natural progression. For a character like Batman, if he didn't die as a young person, he would grow old and, 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 and start to forget or stop caring about why he didn't do certain things before. Um, so I really like seeing him being being willing to go to more extreme lengths to get the job done. Um, and then, of course, you know, does he really factor into like the major events? Not so much. But I like the fact that we still get to see him do his detective thing a little bit when he uh, infiltrates Lex Luthor's organization to find out what's really going on with Shazam, which I just want to say this. Uh, this was the first time I ever saw Shazam in a comic book. Oh, cool. I remember thinking that I was cool. as I was reading it because you'd mentioned that oh. before. And I was like, what an introduction to the character. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and it's really weird, but it made me feel... And this is why I feel this way now. Like Shazam is one of the most powerful characters in DC yeah. because of how much respect they give his power set. He could have killed Superman. Mm-hmm. Um, he was super dangerous. And Batman felt so much so that he needed to figure out what was going on with him before they moved forward. So I just wanted to throw that out there. thought that was really cool. That might be my first Shazam exposure as well. No, that's not true. I read the very first Shazam comics, actually. I, I love the way that uh, that Alex Ross drew him, too. Yeah. Like, showing how scared he was in the brainwashing segments, and then how yeah. fucking scary and, like, Creepy. dead in the face he is yeah. when he's fighting Superman. He's got that like, big grin, but nothing's mm. behind the eyes. Yeah, it's, like, truly unsettling because he is such a classic, like, golden age hero, and you know that he's, like, supposed to be a kid. You know, it's like, oof. Gives you it gives you chills. Yeah, I was trying to I was trying to kind of piece together what I thought he kind of represented. Like when when Captain Marvel was created, uh, Billy Batson was intended to be the kids reading at home, and this is like the most corrupt version of that. And I was trying to think like, is this could this be like the kids that read Captain Marvel in nineteen forty or whatever? Fast forward fifty years, you know. 
uh, is it like a, a lack of wanting to grow up in the world or something? Uh, I I have a, a, th- yeah. a thought. Um, I actually feel like the Lex um, Lex Shazam relationship is kind of uh, a reflection of what the negative influence on our youth looks like. Oh, okay. Um, hmm. So Superman had a lack of influence on the next generation and we see how that turned bad lex steps Uh, into that void right and billy batson is a young person who grew up obviously lex is 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 not is not influencing him necessarily strictly through his words but he's actually you know mind controlling him or whatever um but yeah i i feel like that's a reflection of the negative influence that this older generation ha- can have on the youth. Yeah, you know that's interesting, and I'm, I'm sure this wasn't maybe. I mean, maybe it was, maybe it was but I, I doubt it. I, I, when you say that, it kind of makes me think of um, kids that did grow up in like the 50s, 60s, and 70s, being kind of spoon-fed the Kool-Aid of of <laughs> a lot of really bad things happening, particularly in the United States, since this is a story about American comic books, uh, and Lex Luthor is like all those bad people. <laughs> Spoon feeding these kids all this terrible stuff. The boomers, yeah, is what Shazam would be, right? Like he's a boomer, yeah, yeah, and he's he's the youngest. Well, one of the youngest heroes. He fought alongside the Justice League. He knows what it takes to be a good hero. But I, I mean, I would imagine because I don't know how old Billy Bats is supposed to be, like ten. Yeah. Um, if if ten years go by, that means he spent his teenage years without their influence in his life anymore. They're all gone, and he watched the world go to shit as he developed as a person. Yeah, and his most formative years. Uh, Kel, you're the you're the resident Shazam fan. Did did you like this version of Shazam? Well, I mean, no, nobody likes it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, favorite yeah. character brainwashed and you know used as a bad guy (laughs) um it is it is cool to see uh it is cool to see him played as a foil to superman in a really serious way though yeah yeah um and and you know i've seen that a couple of times through you know uh my various comics travels the uh the justice league unlimited has a mm. really good uh, episode on it yeah and, also uh, manipulated by luthor yeah, yeah 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 and um there are several good comics about it where like superman finds out who he is you know who billy batson is and uh superman goes straight to shazam and he's like hey what the fuck uh one of my favorites is, and and Alex Ross brings this up uh, in in this edition. Uh, there's a, a, a oh shit, what's it called? It's a uh, it's one of the old old comics that I read in the Smithsonian Book of Comics. It's a a parody. It's re- it became really really famous, uh, and it's basically um, a Superman Shazam battle. Uh, but it's a, it's like Captain Moneybags or something. <laughs> I gotta find this. It's so stupid. Okay. Uh, so uh, in this, I found the page. It's uh, on Captain Marvel's bio page, actually. And uh, Alex 
Ross says, uh, my earliest concept was that of a showdown battle between Superman and Captain Marvel, which was inspired by the classic Wallywood art for Harvey Kurtzman's parody from Mad Magazine, Super Duper Man. And this parody is so stupid, but it's so, like, it's so prolific for what it was in fucking 1940. Um... That it was, it's so cool to see it done seriously mm. here. And it had such, such a huge impact for uh, the way I uh, feel about the character um, growing up. And uh, this, along with uh, actually, fun- funnily enough, Batman Strikes Again, The Dark Knight Strikes Again. Uh, they're two. Uh, iterations of the character that just works so well for me uh you know captain marvel versus superman is like maybe the oldest comic book versus battle because in real life you know Fawcett comics went to court with dc comics over uh, copyright infringement stuff um and i think looking ahead 25 years after this is published i think the fight between captain marvel and superman is one of the more staying moments that people remember from this book and it was only a few pages long but uh left a really uh, powerful impression uh, good conflict genuinely i think one of the only reasons he's not around as much anymore is because superman's there it's the same reason martian manhunter isn't around as much or doesn't do as much anymore is because superman's there you have superman and it's 2020 why do we need two more characters that do the exact same thing uh yeah forget the fact that they uh, have different personalities uh barely i don't know um i feel like shazam has such a unique place in the league um i mean manhunter does too and he's actually kind of come back he's made a comeback um and then more like the scott snyder run uh, martian manhunter was a very important piece of that run but um shazam's childlike nature uh makes him so interesting hmm. because he has all this power but he's a kid right um and so i love the battle that him and superman have in this particular comic because again if you look at shazam as representing that younger generation that did grow up idolizing these heroes um superman is fighting against this character who he helped sort of steer in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and for it to be shazam who saves who saves us basically um and not superman and not wonder woman and not batman i really really love that because they gave that moment to the new group of heroes. Shazam is that counterbalance uh, subtextually, thematically, to Magog. Magog is the one who causes all of the bad stuff. And Shazam is kind of the one who saves everyone. He doesn't end the conflict, but he saves everyone from an ultimate end. What I One thing I came across this time is... Did Shazam make the right decision? Why? Like, should Superman have been the one to stop the bomb and sacrifice himself 
an arguably he tried to not not well i know he tried to but shazam didn't let him he he couldn't let him and i feel the reason he couldn't let him is twofold so on the one hand i think shazam had been through a lot i think that uh what lex luthor did to him uh really messed him up Hmm. uh he's i always imagined that he would grow up with like arrested development Mm -hmm. um but then you know think about the impact of him also being mind controlled and under thumb of lex luthor that's pretty bad yeah but then also um i'm not sure shazam was thinking about this but in my mind i go to you know the world still needs superman's presence if it's gonna rebuild you know even if they survive this attack uh this nuclear attack without superman can they really heal you know, um, he needs to be that beacon. So that's that's where my mind went. I think this is some of the best paneling, dialogue, and art in the entire story, actually. Um, Superman slows everything down to a halt. And he says to Billy, listen to me harder than you ever have before. And he shows Billy everything that's happening around him, the sheer carnage of this conflict. And he talks about how... The decision here, basically, either stopping the bomb or not stopping the bomb. And it's juxtaposed here with the pastor because he talks about how uh, superhumans or mankind, one will pay the ultimate price. It's not for me to make, I'm not a god. And then Superman says to Billy, in that decision, I'm not a man. It, this is like the the crux of, of the entire conflict. But then he says to Billy, but you, Billy, you're both. Because he's literally... A man imbued with the powers of a god. Just, ah, this is the best. But, so, the decision here was that he wipes out most of the superhuman population? Who? Shazam. Well, not no, I of don't, purpose. I, uh, yeah, right. I, well, I think yeah, it's... but it still happened. Right. And what, so, the crux of my question is, if Superman took it and sacrificed himself... Would we still have all these people and we wouldn't have all this death? But then Sean's point is, well, if that happened and there was no Superman and you still had all these people, then uh, there's no one to lead. So there's all this death anyway. It's just not superhumans. Right. Well, I think the, I think the takeaway that you're supposed to have there is that the both of those decisions are lead to a, a bad end right that if all the superheroes die it's going to be this group of people who are leading that were willing to commit genocide in the name of peace right um and if the heroes continue on without superman the world's going to end right that's already been established that this fight ends in armageddon so i think it's like Shazam is like taking the third path Right, which is that, you know, it, it has to be um, a, a a marriage between those two options, right? That um, to a point that Phil made that right, the ultimate takeaway is that the superhumans need to not be treated as gods and not think of themselves as gods. They need to be people. Batman also says that um, enough survived that. There, there, the conflict still kind of could exist anyways. So I, when I was rereading it this time, Kale, I was like, well, wait a second. You know, did they all just die anyway? Like, what the hell? But then um, Batman, I, I believe it is, does make the point that, like, a, a ton of people survived that. 
A lot of people were sheltered by the the the, the shield of Green Lantern. I don't know, that's still not the impression I get from reading it. There are a couple of the shitty people, and then the people we like, but that's, it seems like a lot more got wiped out. Well, let's, let's transition here and talk about, we're talking about, you know, regular people and gods. Let's talk about an actual god, the last person I kind of want to spotlight here, which is Wonder Woman in this story. Um, you know, talk about how you know she takes the primary leadership role here as we head into armageddon she's the one that basically says i'll make the hard decisions if you can't cal what do you guys think of this version of wonder woman um, i think it was perfectly in line with everything wonder woman has ever done it all it definitely gave me the same kind of feeling that i, I mentioned at the top where it felt like a, a turn for the character that feels super influential to the point where, like, I can think of several other stories that have come after where it's like, if push comes to shove, Wonder Woman will take control or Wonder Woman will, you know, um, fight the good fight or she will become bloodthirsty. And, like, I, you can see all the different shades of that journey for her that have echoed in, like, all these other interpretations of her. Like, it reminds me of, like, the evil Wonder Woman in Flashpoint. It reminds me of the way that we're seeing Wonder Woman heavy metal, like... It felt like a, a um, I don't know the word I'm looking for, I guess, but like a, a very like it, definitive take on the ripple character. effect. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, yeah, killing Maxwell Lord in Infinite Crisis. Right. Wonder Woman is a character who is ready for any role. She's she's ready to perform whatever she feels is necessary at the time. In um. In identity crisis, you know, she's the, you know, the person who's willing, who's going to heal everybody and says and has that great speech. Um, you know, she's always ready to to do what's necessary. And in this book, that's what she she felt was necessary. And we can agree with it or disagree with it. But um, I think it's easy to understand why, from her perspective, it's time to, you know, it's time to get some stuff done. Um, and Superman is, so you could argue Wonder Woman is choosing an extreme option and that's fine. Superman is choosing nothing. Yeah, right. And that's the biggest problem is that he's not acting. He doesn't want the responsibility. It's not until he's willing to accept it that everybody can kind of come into the role that they should be in. Wonder Woman will only go to this level when that's the nuclear option. You reference death metal. In death metal, everything's gone to hell. So she's got to do what she's got to do. Mm-hmm. And this is similar. But when Superman is the anchor, Wonder Woman does not have to be that. And the whole reason why the Justice League fell apart and everybody lost their convictions is because Superman, who was the anchor of all of the, the superhuman community in DC, left. So left to their own devices, everybody moved away from who they normally are, and this is the result. But it took him to come back to his senses for everything to be right again. Up until then, Wonder Woman is like, hey, I'm game for anything. And that's what I love about her character. Yeah, I thought that um, her arc is is the one that's the most developed and the most interesting besides Superman's for sure, right? Like, she is at, at, at different times in the story either, you know, his greatest uh, asset or, or, like, a minor antagonist even, right? Where, like, the the 
you know, kind of divide between him and his his league is when she assumes control because he's again abdicating his responsibility. You know, I mean, shit, she's the one who gets him back in the game in the first place. Yeah. Well, and uh, so when you earlier when you referenced that uh, that page where Spectre shows Norman sort of their origins and he explains, um, you know, their point in the world i think to me that page is to sort of show the sides right so you've got superman who's emblematic of well superman uh but then you've got uh batman who is emblematic of the best of mankind and then wonder woman who is a literal god like a literal one uh depending on your version whatever yeah yeah. she's the closest to a literal god um and so the three sides here are batman and mankind and the the sort of um more street level less mostly less super powered superheroes wonder woman and the superheroes and then uh superman is caught in the middle and so, and so when, you know, Wonder Woman says, you know, this is war because Superman won't do it, you know, that's, uh, that's her saying, okay, well, we are gods. We have to go do this. I, I love that analysis. I wish that, you know, you mentioned um, Batman representing humanity and I don't feel like the like i know that's the intent i don't feel like the book does a good job of putting him in that role um and you know wonder woman representing the superhero community um i think that's that's pretty yeah that's pretty on on superman he's kind of an island i guess Mm -hmm. in that respect Mm -hmm. I, I, sorry, go ahead, Phil. No, no, no. You're going to the reply. Well, I was just going to say about Batman, like, the people he directly interacts with, other than Martian Manhunter, are humans. There's Lex, there's Oliver Queen, uh, Dinah Lance, and Ted Kord. Yeah. Yeah. But and, what is, like, okay, so what what is... As what Lex, and then the bad guys who are all humans. What is Batman's goal in your mind? I to be Batman. I don't have an I, <laughs> yeah, I don't have an right. argument. <laughs> to, I mean, yeah, like <laughs> to exert control, just, right? Like, I mean, yeah. he, he makes a point about how human history should have never been impacted by a Kryptonian, and like that's that's the statement he makes, but like. I was about to bring this up where I, I – his motivations were the thing. I Again, I felt like he was so hypocritical and, like, some of the stuff he was doing really didn't ring true for me. Where, like, I thought it was really dumb. Like, when they first introduced the idea that, like, I – you know, I have my own group and we're all humans who think humans should, you know, lead the direction of society and blah, blah, blah. Cool. And when that's Oliver Queen and Ted Kord and Black Canary, even though she has superpowers, I guess, but doesn't really use them that often, so maybe she makes the cut – then all of the people who support them, like most of them are people who have 
powers. And like, funnily enough, they're the kids of his sidekicks. Right. And like, you know, people like, uh, I don't know that, that whole thing felt like off to me where it's like, Oh, our Trump card is that we have a bunch of superheroes. Let's go beat all the metahumans. It's like, why would you sign up for this squad? Like, this is a you're aligning yourself with a group that directly is against your own interests, you know? Like and there's no explanation of that. There's no conversation as to why they follow Batman or or any of that shit. And when it's Oliver Queen and Blue Beetle, I'm like, "Well, fine, they're just dudes." So like it makes well, sense. Also, they're rich dudes, it should be noted. Sure. Ted, Bruce, and Ollie are all like multimillionaires or billionaires. Right. Um, and I think like that plays into the, the conversation of, um, I believe it's the specter who says that like, you know, that these are like men who realize that they no longer dictate the, the future of humanity or whatever. Fine. That's legit. But like to have that many of their supporters just be people who have superpowers to me feels super off. I alluded to it earlier with, with respect to one woman. The entire story for her feels to me like one of grieving. Her her sure. actions come from a person in distress to me. You know, impulse decisions, well, you know, granted are things that Wonder Woman has done in other stories in the past. They all feel motivated by the fact that she failed in her own mind. I think they're all coming from that perspective. Yeah, and I think that's what the whole story is. It's like everyone's coming from a point of grieving, except Bruce, who's just, um, well, he eats his steak well done. Sure. Well, I think the, I think I would, I agree with Sean that I think that's where they're all coming from, but I think the thing that you might be uh, touching on there is that I think she's the only one of them who's still, like, in the process of, like, like they're in different stages of grief, right? Like, Superman is in grief because like he's lost everything and like his parents will never come back. Like Lois will never come back. Wonder Woman is I think acting in the way that she is because she feels as though there's a chance for redemption. You know, she's like desperately acting um to try and reclaim some semblance of normalcy, right? Through whether that's through the league or through, you know, uh regaining her her status among the Amazons. Um her her grief is probably the most recent. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and like she's still in the mid, in the thick of it. Yeah. That's a good point. Uh I did say that was going to be the last person, but I did w- t- want to touch on one more person, which is sure. we've talked about him a bit, Mr. Lex Luthor. <laughs> Who's a real shit in this story. <laughs> what else is new? <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, he's just doing Lex things. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Pulling that's... the puppet strings, getting played by somebody smarter than him. Yeah. It's yeah. Lex shit. <laughs> standard. That's pretty good. Uh, that, the, like, my two favorite, because, like, this is a book with very little levity, but both of the good jokes are Batman jokes. The thing when Superman just bails and he's like, oh, so that's what that's like. Got a genuine <laughs> laugh out of me. That's a really solid Batman joke. And yeah. then, like, when Lex Luthor's like, he's like, don't you double-cross me. And then Lex Luthor's like, no, you double-cross me. Like, <laughs> that's such a, like, Batman, like, I'm playing 40 chess while you're playing checkers move. <laughs> and I was into that as well. <laughs> I-, I loved Lex's inclusion for the sake of, of having – representation from the old guard of villains yeah 
Um, Joker dies, obviously. Yeah. I But I don't think... I think his biggest contribution to the story is what uh, what happens with Shazam. Yeah, know, sure. did to Shazam. His his crew felt mostly irrelevant. They were. Yeah. I, can, can we just talk about the fact that they have Catwoman there as if she's like a major player, and they're like, "Oh, well, I'm going to remind you that Ed Nigma's only allowed here because he's your guest," and she has zero lines in the entire story, and Edward Nigma talks more than many of the characters who are actively more relevant in the plot. True, part of his role in that scene though is to inform us mm-hmm. of who's sitting at that table sure. it is is for exposition's sake and i think that's kind of where i want to transition here i kind of want to go through our cavalcade of uh characters here um we did this when we talked about earth x but you know a lot of our minor characters who maybe are underdeveloped or were just there for like kind of um a fan service of just being like oh look that's uh that's what the flash looks like now uh, were there any were any of these characters or, or moments that really popped for you that you enjoyed? Oh man, Red Robin to me is my is my absolute favorite. That's yeah. such a cool costume. That was my the first thing I said. I was like, that's a dope look for Dick. I had to it's, I had to look at him twice. I was like, oh, Doctor Midnight's in this story. I'm like, nope, Red Robin. Did you see Doctor Midnight is in this? Story. Is he really? Yeah, he. So to differentiate. Uh, Red Robin and Dr. Midnight. Dr. Midnight is a cape and cowl filled with smoke, Just, basically. Yeah, energy. Oh, cool. yeah. I like the Flash, uh, the way they showed him as as the protector of... Uh, what's Keystone City. City. Central City. Central, Central City. City. Jeez. Yeah, I oh, love the idea that he's just running around Central City all day, <laughs> nonstop, uh, stopping crime. I, I love uh, that, like every scene where he's like there among everyone, he's just like vibrating it, in and out of reality the entire time. It's Keystone City in this book, by the way. Okay, mm. okay. Uh, the uh, the notes that Alex Ross put together is that he's an amalgamation of all three major flashes barry j and wally oh interesting hey buddy yeah because they call him wallace west don't they i think it is wally uh just because like the the timeline fits or whatever but the uh he he you know must have like the essence of the speed force powers of jay and barry as well and he's wearing wearing um jake's helmet helmet. yeah the hat yeah which i've always liked i always thought that was a cool design yeah of course you do you have eyes <laughs> and a fucking beating heart duh my my favorite kind of cameo in this story was orion uh hmm. he played out the natural conclusion of jack kirby's fourth world story where he uh he mm. has since killed dark side and he hmm. looks more like dark side than ever and he's been elected as like the ruler of apocalypse and uh, he's not doing a great job. I love how Superman just shows up and just talks shit. <laughs> he's like, of all my old allies, you're the one who disappoints me the most. It's like, bro, you come to my planet and just fucking talk shit. You came here for my advice. Like, go fuck yourself, Superman. Yes, Orion, you don't even just... know what I've been through, you piece of shit. So you've been farming for ten years in a fake farm. Like, go fuck yourself, man. Uh-huh. <laughs> Orion kind of just takes it, though. He's like, yeah, sucks here. <laughs> yeah, I know. He's like, well, you know, it didn't work out how I planned, man. Mm-hmm. You want to come drop your trash here? That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, even after Superman insults him, he offers him a solution. Yeah. 
That's clout. Yeah. I definitely I definitely like that he was just like, yeah, fuck it. Bring him here. I don't care. Can't be any Let worse. Let him burn. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other one uh, Cal talked about off bike was Dead Man, Boston Brand. That was a cool cameo. I like that design yeah. for him, too. I, uh, I'll, I'll say it on, on mic now, because Pete, uh, is here. I, I, immediately after finishing this book, I got on eBay to see if I could just, just to price some Kingdom Come figures, and I found a dead man for three fifty, three dollars and fifty cents. Did you get it? Yeah, hell yeah, I got Kale, it. I love that you did that, because that is also what I did immediately after finishing this. I, I, I went and, I found, like, a really dope Superman figure wow. that i, I want to get <laughs> i want it yeah the after reading it again i would like the the red arrow and the red robin figures as well the red arrow costume was really cool too that was a, a cool evolution for um uh oh my god what's his name Roy Roy no, 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 nobody tell no 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 too late he got he did it already it's roy well, harper there i knew it who's who's roy harper he's arsenal that's true it's beating all right all right. <laughs> I know his superhero name. Don't gatekeep. <laughs> sure you do. Uh, that's I'm not gatekeeping. I'm making fun. That's one of the coolest things um, about Alex Ross stories is that when he's on the art, you always get these really interesting um, designs for their, their costumes, and especially because a lot of his stories are future stories or alternate reality or whatever. Um, he gets to really play around. Like I think Green Lantern looks pretty cool. I was gonna this. say, yeah, his yeah. whole like armor with the sword thing was very. Cool. I I actually hate Green Air, uh, Green Lantern in this. Do you? He's it's one of my least favorite Green Lantern designs. Hmm. Oh, I think he looks like a fucking badass. He looks like a knight, and considering this is like Alan Scott, I, I like that kind of magical knight kind of thing. I thought it was really funny how they showed Steel, but he was dressed up like Batman instead of Superman because Superman bailed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Sean, you talked about Alex Ross's uh, cool designs here. I want to circle back to this conversation that I kind of led the show off with. And guys, give me you know your favorite kind of Alex Ross moments here. Is there anything that really popped? My favorite, I think, pages in the whole thing that aren't just like, wow, look how amazing these superheroes look, um, is uh, the in the beginning, in the first issue, where um, you have that that shot of, of Clark on the, the farm, and he's, like, in the overalls and everything, and he just looks, like, old and tired, and um, it, it's... And that's generally a thing that appeals to me in art, is, like, someone who can really, really nail, like emotion and and like strong expressions but i the way he draws superman is like so so definitive in my mind and i'd never even read the book before now but just like that kingdom come superman by alex ross so fucking iconic yeah 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 i also really like his superman he has like a real um real classic americana look to him he looks like a big beefy farmer it's pretty cool (laughs) yeah uh, what about you, Sean? Yeah, um, I, it's. I feel like it's. It's kind of tough to talk about um, Alex Ross, his work, because so much of it is just amazingly classic. Yeah, you know, like we could talk about you know almost every page, and there's something iconic on it. 
um, he has the benefit of having the the capital to hire actors to pose. Right. And that is a very big strength of his work because, again, he's capturing moments. You know, we talk about the different art styles a lot when we do reviews. And uh, Alex Ross prefers to show you a moment in time. And so many of these could be moments that you could take and say, I want this on my wall. Yeah. Even the most, yeah. you know, uh, even the smallest scene uh, you, you could you could say that about. And, and, and it's it's beautiful. I mean, the fight between Superman and Shazam, I'm never going to forget that. Yeah. Um, it's it's always been in my mind, that, that fight between those two characters. Wonder Woman's costume, mm-hmm. the, the golden, like, what is it, like a golden eagle type of thing? Yeah. Um, that's in the Wonder Woman 1984 movie. I don't know if this was the first appearance of that costume, but it's pretty cool anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, stuff like that. Superman, when he... when. Uh, when the, the nuclear bomb goes off and he's on his knees or whatever and he's, um, you know, freaking out. Like, oh, they're just tragic. Yeah. It's just a beautiful book. And it doesn't have the crazy paneling that we are used to now. It's very, it's, it's, it's very um, pedestrian in that sense. But again, when you're talking about someone who is trying on every page to give you iconic looks at these characters... Uh, and to treat them as larger than life, you really don't need to go crazy with the panels. You can stick to, you know, more traditional stuff and just get cool moments out of them in that. And he does it very effectively. Uh, yeah, Pete's been holding up a few pages that stand out to him. I'll, I'll do the same here. If you're watching the YouTube version, uh, I'm holding up where Clark is watching basically everything that's happening in the world. Yeah. Trying to catch up after the last 10 years in his uh, Fortress of Solitude. And in solitude, he truly is. Um, and yeah, this is just a just incredible compilation of just you know every Sean, you put it best. Every page feels like something you could hang up on a wall. I like immediately had the thought afterwards, like while I was looking at the figures and everything, I was like, I wonder how much an Alex Ross like pieces you know like i'm sure it fucking is but like it's a collector's thing i would love to get uh a a version of like kind of a an amalgamation of like clark in the classic like you know like the the, this like more golden age inspired look but like with the glasses on that like classic oh he's pulling the you know the s out like a mat i just i want it now i want a nice (laughs) superman print from him uh for me uh, the so i mean these are iconic by now but the uh the armageddon pages mm. uh right after the uh explosion where superman's waking up and everything yeah uh those two pages are incredible uh i also oh the iconic Shazam page obviously yeah that's uh yeah. but also little little mentioned i think are the i love it anytime the specter shows up yeah i i love what alatros does with the specter it makes him haunting uh and um ethereal and and larger than life in the way that uh he is and would be um but at the same time when you see him in his human form at the end 
He's familiar, and he feels friendly. I, I do like the line about him getting something named after him at the superhero-themed restaurant. Mm. It's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. That, I thought that was funny, because like, when they just showed him kind of like sitting in the crowd at the church, I was like, oh, that's cute. Like It's like a nod to his humanity, but then I'm like, oh, these dudes are just hanging out, getting a burger now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Listen, weirder things happen in the... In the DC universe. Fair enough. Johnny Thunderbolt has a fucking genie and a pen. That's right. <laughs> Comics rule, dude. <laughs> Honestly, that that is a really good punctuation point in this conversation. Uh, comics rule. This whole book is a celebration of comics. Um, do you guys have any kind of final thoughts on this story before I uh, kind of close things out? Sean? It's iconic. It's classic. There's a reason why people talk about it so much. I think if you, you know, if you love these characters, this is a great book to check out. I mean, I guess I'm getting into like the, you know, what I recommend. Let's now, let's but... encapsulate that in this conversation. That's fine. Would you recommend this? Yeah, yeah, easily. I, I I've recommended it before. I've recommended it several times. I've lent out my copy before. Um, like I said at the top. There really aren't many greater ambassadors for comics than uh, Mark Wade and Alex Ross. You're gonna get a story that is, even if it's even if it is imperfect, which we pointed out, all of the flaws that this book has are outweighed in my mind by the highs. Um, and you know, I love it, and I I was very vocal about criticizing it here, but this book has been has been praised enough. If we're gonna have a conversation, let's get into it. Yeah, you know, but but. But this is a great book. I, I love it. Uh, this will not be the last time I read it. I'm very glad we did read it. And uh, I would recommend it to anybody who cares about these characters. It's not hard to get into. And I would argue that it's easy for you to get into a story that's so short about these characters because you know them so well by now. You know, each one of them is a box office, you know, juggernaut in their own right. And you've seen them on TV. You know who these characters are. Here's a future rendition of them. You don't need the exposition and other stuff. You get it. And that's one of the things I love about this book so much. Um, and even if it is not great in terms of how it delivers its message, it does have a message. It does have something to say. And you can get something out of it if you read it. So I love it for that reason too. Two thumbs up. It's a brilliant book, and uh, yeah, I love it. Yeah, I, I echo everything that Sean said there. Where in terms of you know, I I definitely uh, gave it its lumps here, and like was happy to pick it apart. But um, that's the point of these book clubs, right? Is like you want to pick apart the classics and talk about you know why they are what they are. Um, but I don't you know I don't think that that means it's above criticism. Um, but to me. It's uh, it's way less a, an issue of peaks and valleys than it is of like peaks and like plateaus, you know, or like there there are limitations to the story because it is so short and it's unfortunate because I think what is there and what works is so strong that you wish that um you got a little bit more of it and not in a oh, it's too short and it leaves me wanting more away as a, as much of a, oh, man, there's really a lot to chew on here, and I wish they had had more space to do so. Um, so while I did make the comment, like, I think this is a book that 
you can see the works that influenced it, right? And they're they're vast, and you know it might feel familiar to you if you do read it as a new reader. I think that um, regardless of whatever narrative flaws we may have picked at here, like the art alone is. I think enough of a reason for price of admission. Like I, I don't think that there is a book that I've read where I, I think the depiction of the justice league is as, I don't know, special as this is, you know, like Sean is always the one to say that like the justice league are, are, are gods, right. And should have looked at as this, you say that all the time too, Phil, uh, like this pantheon. And I don't, I don't think that there's a better representation of that interpretation of the league than this, you know? Um, so, like for for whatever complaints that we may have levied, I think it, it absolutely earns its status as a classic, and I'm really glad that I like have closed that gap for myself because it was definitely a really really enjoyable ride. Um, and it's a book I look forward to revisiting when I've had some distance from it and kind of seeing um, how it evolves with me as a piece. Uh, what do you think, Cal? Uh, much like my favorite book, the Bible, this book is perfect and Greatest bunk story on ever your criticism. Told. And uh, yeah, I would absolutely, I would, I would throw this book out at people. Yeah, I you don't need to know shit to read this book. Oh, you know who Superman is? Take this, shove it in your pants. Well, if, if, get out of here. If you don't, there's a page where they tell you who he is. So <laughs> they literally tell you who he is. That's right. Uh, yeah, this is a, I, I'm so glad I came back and read this. Uh, one of my favorite things about the book club is having the opportunity to revisit books that I haven't read in 10 plus years and, and oftentimes are classics. Um, yeah, this is, this really stands on its own. Uh, I, it, it, it's, it's tough to describe a book that has been described by many people who are paid for a living to describe books about why it's so good, but <laughs> Truly, uh, like Kale, this is a book I would lend to anyone. I think uh, both narratively and artistically, it stands on its own. It's truly a piece of art. Um, maybe, um, maybe the best graphic novel written in the 90s. I don't know. Uh, anyway, that will do it for us. That's been another edition of our uh, monthly book club series. I hope you all enjoyed it. Like I mentioned at the top, please join us in the Discord. And if uh, you leave your suggestion for a book club, maybe we'll get to it next month or some month down the road. Uh, make sure you uh, follow and like us on uh, Twitter and Instagram. And make sure you subscribe to us on YouTube and ring the bell so that you can always be notified of what we're doing. And make sure you listen to our weekly uh, new show that drops every Monday. Uh, for Phil of the Comics Pals, this has been the Comic Pals Book Club. Take care, everyone. See you next month. Take care,